This is the Interesting-ish Podcast, where I hope you listen long enough to say this is some interesting-ish. I'm Rick Myring. I'll tell the interesting stories and you keep listening so that you may find that your story is interesting too. Hello friends and welcome back to the Interesting-ish Podcast. I really appreciate your time. I want to break down this episode a little bit of on the front end because it is an hour long and I want to create a bit of a framework for why we're diving in. I sat down with Andy Soper around two topics that largely have not much to do with each other. On the front end for about 13 minutes, we dive into his ebook titled Seven Legitimate Reasons Why I'm Afraid of Bats. We had a fun time uh, chatting around this topic and hearing some of his stories. So check that book out if you are interested in some wild and fun times centered around bats. Then we dive into kind of where our two paths cross a little bit. Both Andy and I, uh, at one point in our 20s, left the construction industry to stumble into residential social work uh, at Wedgwood Christian Services. Out of that experience, Andy began to become a creator and a builder centered around the topic of human trafficking. Uh, He grew a heart and a passion for this topic uh, with his experiences there and began the Manasseh Project with Wedgwood. Now this winter I saw a video centered, it was from 2014. Um, I was in a leadership Grand Rapids group through the Chamber of Commerce and we watched this video and had a panel discussion centered around the topic of human trafficking and this video shook me and others to the core. Um, It has a hashtag that says stop this traffic. It's from 2014. You can find it at manassaproject.org and um, it kind of raises awareness around the topic of human trafficking being right in our backyard. And that was one experience that stuck with me from this year's um, Leadership Grand Rapids experience. And so I figured the best way to begin sharing some awareness around that is to bring on a guy like Andy Soper. Andy at his best is a creator and a builder. He loves um, setting organizations up, building them, creating them around a vision and kind of setting them on their course with um, some other folks around to to do um, to take up that man, you know, uh, baton, I suppose, and, and do that work. He's done that now with Wedgwood's partnership and, and a few other um, strategic partners throughout his last decade with the Manassa Project. Then he also got into a youth homelessness drop-in center in Grand Rapids called HQ. And most recently, he is uh, developing and building an organization called Measurable Change that uh, also does education around the topic of data and human trafficking. It's an interesting conversation. It's a heartbreaking conversation, but it's awesome to see his heart and other hearts come on fire around this topic um, to create a better world for our children, for our adults, for ourselves, for us to find healing and for us to stop human trafficking. I hope you're intrigued by this. I hope it causes you to make some change in and around your own community and just have an awareness for 
protecting and loving those who are most vulnerable around us. Hope you enjoy. Andy's a great guy to listen to. Pump up the volume because I'm still working on my microphones. And thank you for listening. I've got a review on here that we're going to begin with. Oh, no. I hope you dig it. It's three sentences. But then you can pontificate on that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, I have with me today Mr. Andy Soper on the Interesting-ish podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Yep. Uh, how are you enjoying our view at Camp Lodges thus far? I would, I would move here. <laughs> I could work that out. <laughs> work that out. Um, we are going to jump right into an Amazon review I have pulled up on my computer. And it is a review from November 18 of last yeah. fall. It's a review for the book, the ebook, Seven Reasons. No, wait. That's the, that's the title. Seven Reasons is comic storytelling at its best. That's the title of the review. Really? Yes. You <laughs> check this more than I do. Why well, do you? Even just the one. I'm doing my research this morning. <laughs> um, but you have a, an ebook you released out last year, and what is the title? Seven Legitimate Reasons Why I'm Afraid of Bats. Yes. Yeah. And the one Amazon review I've got pulled up thus far, we got to get people to do some work. It is a five-star review, so you're 100% five-star. Yes. Um, description says, laugh-out-loud descriptions of outrageous encounters in a loving but moderately dysfunctional family. <laughs> <laughs> Andy paints pictures with his words. A great read. Well, that was a nice person. Uh, <laughs> I don't know who that is. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> your co- your she co-author. She wouldn't say moderately dysfunctional, <laughs> so it can't be her. Right on. Uh, tell me, tell me about the brainchild of, of putting these stories together. Uh, for a couple of years ago, I hit, I hit a wall where I had like nothing to do and, uh, we were not in between jobs, but jobs starting, Mm -hmm. right? Like just as a contractor. And, um, we had been writing down all these ideas of stories that we could tell when we were doing trainings, um, we talk a lot about trauma and that sort of stuff. So you always want to tell a story that's can put people in their body without being afraid. So if I talk about, you know, spiders or in this case, bats, right. Um, a scary movie, people will laugh and it's safe. And I remember when I was at the scary movie, whatever. And I started listing stories I had about bats, like all these friggin' times, especially when I, well, no, all the way through my twenties, I'm going to say in like 33, I've fought so many bats, but some of the experiences were like hellscapes uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Like there's right. nothing that made sense. Um, they always involve some sort of like be- somebody being reprimanded for no reason, a lot of anger that was just misplaced. And so we thought, well, how many do I have? And I think I got to, I think I got to like five and I said, okay, well, five is a terrible number for a book title. Mm-hmm. How many legitimate reasons do I have? I was like, it's got to be seven. Uh, so I went, called my mom and said, um, I have these stories. And I had conflated two of them twice. So they were two separate stories I had smushed into one. Okay. And I was like, oh, they are actually better as separate stories. Mm-hmm. So um, we got to seven. And it was just a, again, it was just to make people laugh. Like, right. this is... No, it's not fun if you have to kill a bat. Like, mm-hmm. you don't want to kill the bat, but you don't want to die either. And 
nothing makes sense when your amygdala is firing and yeah, things fire are getting flight. thrown. So okay. uh, it was a blast. We wrote it, left it for a year, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, came back to it, reread it, rewrote it. Um, I met my friend, business partner, Mark, mm-hmm. edited it because I went to school for communication arts and he went to school for English. So now we build together. Right. Um, yeah, put it out. It's for anybody who's actually like, could you publish a book? Whether or not it's good or edited mm-hmm. or anybody would read it, it's really not a hard process. Right on. Like there's, yeah. Yeah. Would, and you would encourage more people to just no, say, not. hey, that's not this big mountain. Yeah. Well, uh, but write it in, yeah, publishing, self-publishing isn't the difficult part. It's getting Amazon to pay attention and right. getting your friends or readers to get it. Yeah. Right that's on. a more difficult thing than writing it or even writing a good book. Give me a tidbit, a, a tiny, a tiny look into one of the bad stories that rises to the surface. Like this was wild. Here's yeah. my two minute bit on that. Uh, I was laying brick uh, the year after college, like a year off and whatever. Mm-hmm. Just kind of, I graduated a year early, and took a year off, and then. Uh, I got a call from a grad school I was accepted to in Ohio, and they said, hey, do you want to come down? You'd have to be here in two weeks. It's full ride, and we'll have you teaching. And I was like, hell yeah, this is a great idea. So we had to pack everything up this one night, and it was so bloody hot in August, and we had nothing in the house, no air conditioners, and we're laying on just a mattress, and our one, well, she was like five months old, Wheezy, at that point. She was just like a little Michelin man of (laughs) roles. Right. Um, And this bat struck when just after I had A, thought it was too hot to wear underwear anymore. <laughs> like it was just so hot. The, right. the fan were... didn't do anything. And I was like, I just, I can't take it. You're I need everything off mode. of me. I'm a larger man. I think it was heavier at that point. And this bat struck and I fought it for like half an hour, like <laughs> tracking it through the house and it would fly. But all the lights are on. People are still on their front porches. Like the windows are wide open. People can see me. Yeah. Uh, and after we thought we locked it out of the bedroom, but we locked it into the bedroom. Um, caught it in the in this blanket and was going to throw it outside, but I had to go downstairs first because we're on the second floor. And like new new tenants downstairs. We had lived above our friends for two years. Yeah. They moved out to go to school new tenants downstairs and I was running down the stairs completely naked carrying <laughs> like her grandma's afghan with a bat in right. it um, and as I went to throw it out the door the screen door slammed back and the whole thing just fell at my feet and I could see his little hands all tangled up in the yarn and I'm freaking out so I kick it out onto the porch and he rolls loose and I don't know why but I was like oh shoot I gotta get the afghan mm-hmm so I did. I went out onto the porch. It's probably 10.30 at night. People had already seen me walking down trying to put our daughter to sleep. So we had drawn attention already. Right. Anybody could have called the police. Anyone. Oh, Stark naked fighting that bat. Yeah. But he lived. So this is the best part of, well, it is a part of the story that he lived. That was your gracious ending to that one, right? Right. You, 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 mostly because you had to live. get inside and, and, and get some clothes on. Shower, man. I was so sweaty up there. Straight up, yeah. Well, people can find your book on Amazon. Uh, I just looked it up this morning, 
Uh, I think I Googled in Andy Soper bat ebook and uh, pulled right up. Got yes. your review. Yeah, right on, man. Uh, you tell you tell in one of your profiles on on the website that you're at your best when you're building things. Yeah, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit. So you and I are cut from at least some of the same career cloth in terms of hmm. uh, being in residential care at Wedgwood. Yep. Um, and out of that, you spent a few years, and and I'm not tell us a little bit maybe about your nature with your time there, and maybe what started to fire inside of you in terms of. Okay, I do this residential care, but I have these thoughts about this and this and this. Yeah. Let's go there for a minute. Uh, well, residential care, for people who don't know, is like juvie with drapes, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, an expectation that the whole place is locked down, uh, but you're supposed to be able to heal. That's the, that's the goal, right. is healthy, active citizens in the world. Uh, but I don't know how kids can heal when you put 12 of them in a home with 20 people, they don't know. Right. To tell that, or telling them what to do. So I got into it right out of college. Mm -hmm. um, my wife, Marcy, was like, I was laying brick and I think I had this terrible painting job. Lord have mercy. <laughs> I'm not cut for that. Exterior? How, in, how, uh, it didn't matter. Like, I don't painting, want to paint painting, anything. Painting. Yeah. 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 Um, so she said, well, why don't you apply at Wedgwood? And I had no idea what it was. She's a social worker. Mm -hmm. um, but I went for the interview just because it sort of made sense like are you want me to hang out with angry kids sure well that makes sense mm -hmm. like i didn't know why it would make sense and um i've come to kind of understand what i learned through those years but yeah i i did uh about a year in residential care in a boy's home mm -hmm. it was just a lot of trauma we had some juvenile sex offenders that sort of thing uh went away to grad school came back not for again not for social work because that would have been far more wise <laughs> went for popular culture instead mm -hmm. um, but it came back and I started to find like the same things I learned in pop culture world where we were just talking about how our culture is created what are the stories we tell that makes thing makes power normal makes situations normal what are, how are our cultures created and that same th sort of thing was happening in in those boys homes so I went back to Wedgwood worked third shift which is my favorite thing in the world yep. um, and then at some point I was like, no, I, this makes so much sense to me. Being here working day in and day out, whether you're going home with a broken nose or you got hit with a chair or you had a great night, right? You right. took the kids to the beach, which you can't do anymore. But um, <laughs> the might have been the best time in my career just for friendships that were developed. Sure. Um, yeah, that, it is a grinding. I think about people who go and get their MSWs. Mm -hmm. If, if you are to work in residential first, I think you're a hero mm. because it is a meat grinder yeah. for social workers to go through that, that kind of program specifically because it's so intense. Mm -hmm. But I stayed in it for, I want to say around eight years. Wow. Um, in some capacity. Yeah. Uh, I, did su I was a supervisor for a while and a trainer and all that sort yep. of thing. And I worked, ended up working kind of across a lot of different homes. So I started in where I started with Angry Young Men which is great. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started working with uh, youth dealing with substance abuse. Um, and it was all the sex offender home for a while, mm -hmm. worked, worked there. And then I started working with pre-adolescent boys and teen girls, mm -hmm. or 12 to 18. For sure, the girls. sure, sure. Uh, and that was, that's when everything sort of started ma making way more sense in terms of this is breaking them. Mm -hmm. This is not doing them mm -hmm. a favor. 
Um, not just because good relationships weren't built, but because uh, the whole system was predicated on you're broken, do what we say and you'll be better. Right. Um, without acknowledging that the things that they went through actually prohibited them neurologically from being the way we asked them to be. Right, right. So we, we invested way more time into trauma, uh, understanding trauma. Um, Bezel van der Klook is one of a great, he's a great author, wrote a book, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one came a little bit later. Uh, Daniel Siegel, he writes a lot on the brain, uh, whole brain child. Um, yep. Mindset is another one of his. Um, but just lit, watching the interactions a lot more and saying, like, what, what is really at stake for this kid? The amount of times that I, I participated in or watched a situation escalate to where that kid was physically managed and adults right. had to put their hands on him. And I'm like, right. he wasn't upset about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. No. That has nothing to... Why are we fighting over peanut butter and jelly? What's yep. the rule? I can give a shit about the rules. Right. And that's when it started. <laughs> that's right around the time <laughs> that started to break uh, in residential. And I was like, no. Right. And, and mostly it was in me um, and, and conversations with some close you know, people that we worked with. Of, Man, this isn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that it started to expand throughout our team. And, and actually Billy Lanford, yeah. uh, a friend of ours, took over for me when I left the, the last boys home to start okay. um, the trafficking shelter. Right. So... Um, and that sort of continues, but it's so hard to keep stable because it is a meat grinder and we're going to move 22-year-olds with no experience yeah. through yeah. this space. Um, but that, that experience changed, I think, everything for how I wanted to... How, what I thought my value was to that. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't work in residential care again. Mm-hmm. I can't work at... Probably be really effective for more than a week or two at, drop, at a drop-in center. Right. Um, I just recognize it's the same amount of trauma on the staff. Yes. Um, yeah. And if we can tell a story, give the right example, we're backed up with like best practices and good research, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people carry, walk out the door of our trainings now with a much better idea of like, oh, I know what it's like to feel caged. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, either from a, a child trauma experience or even growing into your adulthood, having this deep pain inside of you and trying to actually do some of that healing as an adult by investing in this other young individual that mm-hmm. might have the same amount of trauma. But if we going to go into those situations um, unhealed or unaware of ourselves, um, at some point there's there's a breaking point. Yeah, you can't take people where you haven't gone. Right. So uh, the amount I working in the trafficking field for the past maybe ten years. Um, there's nobody more resilient than a trafficking survivor. Never met one. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they haven't had the opportunity to heal and we keep expecting them to tell their story without acknowledging the trauma that it brings up in them and then we're like, oh, you're, you're great. You're going right back out to all these survivors to help. It, I have some survivor friends that have been out for 15, well, 5, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And they still carry it. And they've had to learn how to deal with that trauma and re-triggering and, and just, oh, this is the environment I'm in. I have to be on edge. I have to be aware. Right. They've had to learn it. Uh, and it, it threatened to kill them more than one time mm-hmm. through heart problems and anxiety and diabetes and the same things that, uh, you know, kill people who sit around too much. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. You know, we, we have all these quick responses to uh, trauma or, or broken households, and so we establish things like residential social mm-hmm. work. And then, you know, for the time and space, that's a good maybe immediate response to trauma in households or just systems yep. that aren't working. But you were starting to say, you know, we have this pendulum swing, so we create this residential care. Mm-hmm. But then you realize that being part of a, a deeply ingrained system cannot be, sometimes it, it is not human-centered or human-focused in terms yeah. of it's right. a system that's spitting out the person right. still. Yeah, that system is doing what it was designed to do. Right. Keep feeding itself. Yeah. I, uh, Lisa Gunger's book, have you read that book? Mm, no. Uh, the most beautiful thing I've seen is the name of the book. Okay. Uh, but she was talking about her daughter Lucy, who uh, has Down syndrome, mm-hmm. and she was talking about educators visibly frowning when they saw her daughter come in the room, like, like this is gonna this is gonna take my time, and I've already got thirty students, and mm-hmm. um, and they just kept saying there's no place for her here. And then she said it, it struck me at that point that um, the system isn't broken; the system was built this way. Mm-hmm. It was built to prize the skill or whatever of one group and marginalize Mm -hmm. others for so many different reasons. And so when I look at the kids in residential care, right, talking about that pendulum swinging, when it becomes so visibly broken, then then you have to respond. Uh, The solution to that will be invested in the next round of kids that are coming. Right. It really will. Not intentionally, and not like necessarily wickedly. It yeah. just will. So you have something inside of you that wants to start to become a builder in response mm. to there's problem A over here and solution B, and you were trying to find and come up with projects that had the C solution that was a little bit more human-centered, would yeah. you argue? So um, tell us a little bit about that. Out of that came the Manassa project. Yeah. So uh, after working in residential for however many years, um, I had an experience where a, a young woman we were working with, uh, AWOLD from the open program. She was with us in Secure, she moved to an open program, and it, it became clear that uh, just through word of mouth and some confirmation that there was a woman downtown she was living with and that woman was uh, exploiting her for mm-hmm. sex to men in, in Grand Rapids. And I don't know why that messed with me like she was not the first trafficking victim I'd ever right. worked with right like worked with uh, you know juvenile sex offenders and, and kids with substance use issues you've met kids who've mm-hmm. been exploited for sex right mm-hmm. um, but I just couldn't get her out of my head and it was like oh my gosh no the biggest thing for me was no one knows what the hell to do when we find her mm-hmm. um, she's not gonna respond well to anyone law enforcement if she ends up in the ER um, she might certainly not going to be truthful for a number of reasons. Um, and even if we get her back, like, I remember sitting at the corner of, of Division in Delaware. You know where that is in Grand Rapids? Yep. The old tequila lounge is yeah, right there. Yeah. Um, and just sitting in the lights kept turning from like red to green and back around. I was like, I don't even know why I would keep driving and looking mm-hmm. for this girl. I can't ask her to get in my truck at 3 a.m. <laughs> like, right, right. this isn't going to look right. great. Um, and in that experience of knowing, like, we don't know what to do with her. I just wanted to know. Mm-hmm. What would she need? Um, what is the environment that she would want to go back to? Because didn't, it didn't feel like it would be residential. And I didn't know that she could 
her trauma would uh, allow her to live peaceably in a, a home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's the in-between there? Uh, and so for two years, Marcy and I, and a lot of the time, our oldest children at the time who could fold brochures and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, went on like a training bender and learned everything that we possibly could, every conference we could get to. Okay. Uh, and that happened in August of 2010, that girl that ran away. By September of 2010, I had put together a binder and a recommendation mm-hmm. for like, we're gonna do, uh, we're gonna do shelter care. We're gonna have this massive campaign. We're gonna do data collection. We're gonna and just like, right. It was all. I wish I still could find it because I bet you what I'm doing now is still on there. Right. Um, and they were like, oh, that's great. And I had so much energy for it. It was like, well, let's just let them run and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but it happened quick. Like, right. Within a year speaking five six times a week and raising money for a program and and there was there was not a pushback but they were like well why don't we just focus on awareness and i said you should do that and i'm happy to speak at those things but if you're not interested in opening a shelter mm-hmm. i am mm-hmm. i look back at that and like i'm really glad we opened it it's doing great things but there wasn't a standard for us to go off of right so there was a lot of like trying to figure out what can this thing look like, what should it look like, um, without having it look like an old residential program that right. just had specific right. kids coming old, to it. Yeah, same old response to the same problem. Um, but we, within a year and a half, um, we had done huge, huge awareness campaigns with like thousands of volunteers and mm-hmm. weeks long and um, we opened a shelter the shelter Manas Project Trauma Recovery Center as I think what it ended up I think that's what it ended yeah. up being yeah, yeah. Um, but it's 12 beds and it's uh, girls get educated and they get health care and um, staff are with them 24 hours a day and right on. job training and so whatever I would say like well we didn't know what we were doing in a lot of ways um Man, like the magic of you're safe, you belong. Mm-hmm. If you can keep that at the core of, of the programming, right? No matter how far you stray, and like, you'll never have mission drift at all, actually, because you're like that. We can't hold these kids dear, and add this extra thing. Right. We'd have to add people who who understood the the worldview. So we'd have to find those people first before we would do that thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so was there from I mean that that all took place in like two years and then I was just friggin fried <laughs> right right and so the NASA project still exists as a 12-bed yeah. response to that absolutely it uh, Wedgwood Christian Services is where it's planted we didn't start that as a nonprofit because frankly shelter care is a pain it's expensive and we were like well let's stick with an organization that at least knows how to do that right licensing isn't an issue it's connected to all these great things. So that was a no brainer for us. Um, but it's still, yeah, 12 beds. Yeah. Doing their thing. And then I remember too, with the onset of HQ, we talk about system responses to different problems in our community mm-hmm. and you continuing to find these spaces of marginalization. So, um, is that an age bracket response when you start to talk about HQ and a drop in center? Yeah. What is, what is kind of at the root of, there's a missing there's a missing piece of the pie here, yeah. and here's our response. Um, I had started doing trainings on youth homelessness because of the amount of kids that we worked with at Wedgwood that had experienced 
homelessness or truancy or running away. And kids never, <laughs> kids run away, they don't run to, mm-hmm. right? So they were running away from abuse and neglect and family dysfunction. That's always the, it's some combination of those three, right? Yeah. Um, but we had, we had this group, storytelling group, um, with some of the clients uh, at the shelter. And after weeks of, the, the focus of the, the, the group was, can you learn how to tell a good story? Any good story will do, right? right? I don't care if it's yours. Right. I don't even care if it's true. In fact, that's true for almost everything in my life. I don't care if your story is true. If I can't connect with you, it doesn't matter. Um, but we talked them through story and setting and uh, talked about sight and sound and taste and what those do to your body. Um, if I think about the thing that I love for dinner, my mouth salivates and I get my stomach, all right? So teaching them the value of their senses right. as a way to allow them to be in their body without it being a, like that trauma existing in there, make it in, making it this uncomfortable place full of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a while, we were like, well, let's transition away from my involvement. We didn't have any men that work in the home. Uh, and I, like, that was the one, I maybe ran one or two groups around storytelling um but the therapist uh, her name is amber continues to be one of my favorite people in the world she runs a domestic violence place up in uh or shelter not a place for domestic violence uh in cadillac now but okay um she was the therapist and and she took over and asked questions like when was the first time that your body became a commodity mm-hmm. um was used and exploited for somebody else's gain um, all the girls it was when they had run away from home mm-hmm. and I was like stunned mm-hmm. how in the world do uh, the, the, the diverse places that they came from right we girls from the UP and girls from Central America and we have right. mostly in Michigan but if you're whatever but all sorts of different contexts and they all had the same it was got in a fight with mom dad foster parent whoever ran away stayed with my friend her, her mom got mad, kicked me out. Um, and then I was cold and we were at a party and this guy said I could stay at his house if I, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Gave him a blowjob or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, we're, we're just gonna keep picking fruit off this tree. We can open as many shelters as we want. Mm-hmm. And it's not gonna do, it's not gonna do the, the necessary upstream work uh, to stop kids from heading this way mm-hmm. um, and that became well what's the what's the most efficient way to get to people where uh, we can have street outreach you can have a shelter you can have whatever but it was like well why don't we have a place where they can where the central thing is you can just sit down if you need to right we're glad you're here right um, we know that it's a crisis if you are uh, so take your time. Mm-hmm. And that became HQ, which is a drop-in center here or in Grand Rapids, is based 100% on that notion. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a lot of research to get there, but uh, for the most part, the co-founder, Chandra Steininger and I, mm-hmm. and um, Lauren Van Kulen from 311 and a few other people from local agencies, when we were doing all that research, they're a lot more analytical. I feel everything. Like, yeah. I want to... Have you touched it? Like, it's that. I shouldn't be allowed in shops. 
Um, breaking you by. And they asked, I, I listened to these women ask amazing questions and uh, I couldn't help myself just staring out the office window and watching how the staff were interacting with the kids mm-hmm. and how the room was set up and did that, did that make me feel like, uh, did that get to the vibe I wanted? And in some places it was like, no, it was very clinical and mm-hmm. gross and mm-hmm. uh, I, that's probably not fair, but that's what it felt to me. Their focus was just something different. It was a lot of education or employment. So right, we're going to have this professional space. And I was like, I liked even residential, let's crank it up till just below somebody exploding. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, can a space hold the really horrific trauma that youth are carrying and can it host a dance floor at the same time mm-hmm. because they need to exist because if you throw the, the right party, you'll know when people are missing. Oh, this is so great. We need to have something added to who else should be included. Mm-hmm. And um, I think they've been able to pull that off at HQ. Yeah. yeah. I occasionally get text messages from a couple of staff members that will say, you'd be happy the music's up and people are dancing. Mm. So I'm like, this is what we're after. Yeah. And continuously, when you talk about mission roots, you're talking about very simple human desires of belonging and safety absolutely yeah yeah the the one of the best examples i can give about creating a space where that can an actual physical environment where that can happen is some of the shelters or drop-in centers we went to had all the basic need stuff right up front which is wise right uh youth are coming in and they might just want to quickly grab shampoo or socks or condoms or whatever the thing is that they're they're there for that day um and their washing machines um, were up front a lot of times because of bed bugs or whatever. They didn't want to have mm-hmm. to transport everything through. And so when we wanted to design HQ, we were like, well, let's do that. Let's have everything available. So we had a, a group of youth that were uh, advising us on like, well, that ex- experienced homelessness or were experiencing it. Right. And we were like, hey, we're going to put all this stuff up front. And they're like, no, put it in a cupboard somewhere. I don't. I don't want to be met with my need when I walk in mm-hmm. here. And we were all like, oh, of course. Of course you don't want to walk in. Like, I don't walk into a restaurant and it's got, you know, obesity charts on the wall. <laughs> like, that's not, you know what I mean? Right. Um, so we switched that up and we're like, well, let's find cupboards that are sturdy and, like, pretty. Yeah. Um, and let's have youth teach each other walk each other through the space if, if at all possible members youth that come to hq when there's an initial tour it's that youth that's walking alongside right. and going you can get anything you need in here if you need uh, a place to send mail they have mailboxes here uh, so it isn't just us saying this is us this is our these are our limits and our authority and right, um, right. you follow the rules um, right it doesn't no, work it seems to give the, the, the person walking into the room a little more sense of autonomy. Mm. Um, I think of the word, what's the word coming to mind? Um, yeah, I mean, I think of autonomy and I th- think of a, a sense of self-respect that they have their own investment in those decisions. Not yeah. that, oh, you look sick, here's a piece of cake that's going to solve the problem. Or yeah. you don't look like you've brushed your teeth recently. Let's start with that. You know, there's there's a sense of holding down with a thumb and and mm-hmm. and oppositeness to that situation and the kids that 
There's 75% of the youth that walk through the door at HQ are children of color. Mm-hmm. I say children, right? Eight, uh, 14 to 24. So, right. Uh, youth, we'll say, youth of color. And, um, you know, what, 30-ish, 28% LGBTQ? Like, the, it's because they're used to being pushed to the edges right. and okay. told what to do and told that they need to obey. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Um, yeah, structure is great, but structures exist to serve something else, not, right. not the reverse. Right. And so in, in your timeline, we had the Manassas Project NHQ, and I see a quote on here from your new website, Measurable Change, and it says, both continue to be dope. They do. <laughs> I love that quote. Super proud of them. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, tell me where we are now in 2019. You have a new initiative kind of in the last year, but obviously mm-hmm. it's not new. It's been kind of a brainchild of you and some other partners. Yep. Uh, how do we create uh, a, a kind of umbrellaing organization that starts to wrap our brains around matching being trauma-informed with data right. and, and that whole um, onset of measurable change? Um, oh, and for years we've done you know anti-trafficking work and that sort of thing, and uh, the people along the way have been incredibly loyal. So friends that have really disparate very different skill sets and ways they see the world have come alongside and gone, I can paint, I can, mm-hmm. I can take care of your IT needs, we'll dial in all your stuff. And one of those people is a um, guy named Chris McNeil and one is Mark Berry, mm-hmm. um, who everything we've done have had some sort of say in, let, let me add to this project with the thing that sort of turns me on, blows my hair back. Yeah. Um, and they both have different skill set so about 18 months ago uh, well whatever take it back to 2017 we started measurable changes in LLC mm-hmm. um, and it was just doing speaking and consulting and training that I've been doing for years and this was another way to kind of wrap our brain around how to package it to the community um, but when we when we started having a serious conversation about the honestly the, the amount of bullshit around human trafficking mm-hmm. how we talk about it how we collect data um, we compared it to every other major industry and we were like, this wouldn't fly in for Target or Amazon. This wouldn't, this wouldn't fly for Kmart the way, <laughs> right. the way that we collect data and know the populations that work within it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, so our first step was to say, um, well, what actually exists in this world? Uh, who is collecting data? What is the, is there a consensus on what is good collection and bad collection? Um, and how, what, are, what skills do we have and uh, passions do we have that can actually match, that could actually di- turn the dial on how we collect data uh, in Michigan specifically. So um, true to form, we said because of the horrific and inaccurate details and statistics and stories, we need to tell an accurate story. Right. Um, so we set about, uh, on one side, we need to understand victim narratives enough to tell an honest story uh, in labor trafficking and sex trafficking and all the different ways they exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to align our efforts with major systems. Um, so we have, a human traf- we have two different human trafficking governing bodies in Michigan, if people didn't know. Mm-hmm. One is at the Attorney General's office, the Attorney General's Human Trafficking Commission. It's been around since 2013. Okay. And the other one is uh, with DHHS, and it's the Human Trafficking Health Advisory Board. Um, 
and they both had some goals around training and they had goals around data collection, public awareness, um, all sorts of the five to seven different goals for each one, right? Policy and funding, all those sorts right. of things. Um, and we went to them and said, every major health system and public safety system already collects data on human trafficking, whether they know it or not. We just do, mm -hmm. uh, because it shows up in domestic violence and visa issues and in stripping and in hotels where people are cleaning. They all collect data on victims because they show up at the hospital or they get arrested or they whatever. The problem is that they're so woefully misaligned um, that all the data that exists isn't standardized. We don't understand how to, to read it and thus communicate it back to anybody. Um, but the good news is that the tools to fix that problem already exist and honestly have for probably 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, so our storytelling process uh, started with uh, Professor Bridget Carr at University of Michigan Human Trafficking Law Clinic. Mm -hmm. She is incredibly everything. <laughs> Smart, uh, dogged, all the things that I would, um, I would want to be when I grow up. Mm -hmm. But she started the Human Trafficking Law Clinic Okay. And has been, I mean, hundreds of victims that she's worked with around legal assistance or uh, housing or whatever they need to do. And right. she, she said, we could tell an, an accurate story. Let's begin to go through these files, um, all the victim statements from all these cases. Mm -hmm. Let's categorize them. Let's make a story that is true. And then we'll uh, section it out. We'll talk about where people, uh, context and people. Mm -hmm. So where do people come from? Uh, what existed in their environment if they were a wine, right? What are the things right. in the air that they are collecting? We talk about adverse childhood experiences in that section. We talk about uh, social determinants of health when we're doing a training. Yep. Um, and then who is this person and how are they existing in the world? Right. Uh, so maybe it's someone who uh, grew up in poverty in Nicaragua or maybe it's, you know, a girl from Muskegon or whoever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Pakistani chef, kind of heard right. a ton of different stories. Right. Um, and then we say, how did the uh, manipulation category in our story of how did the trafficker build trust, dependency, and then uh, exert their will? Mm -hmm. So we walk through how this trafficker said this, you know, promised this or forced someone to do this or put them in a situation where there were no other options. Force, fraud, and coercion are the three factors. Force, fraud, and coercion. Force, fraud, and coercion are mm -hmm. the three factors in trafficking. And um, how did they... In, in, uh, incite that exploitive experience for the victim. Mm -hmm. uh, we move into an exploitation phase, which is normally the most horrific when you're explaining this is what these folks endured. Uh, we, we have a, an encounters phase of our story where people interacted with someone from the faith community or a law enforcement officer, whatever. Yep. They had interaction with someone who could have helped, yep. often on a daily basis, um, but it never got them out of their exploitation. Um, and we allow along each set step uh, we allow people to stop after each section and we ask questions about their policies about the procedures mm -hmm. if this person walked through your door what is your assessment how is that coded if there's a referral how is that sent out and how do you get information back on it right so it's creating a giant uh, communications map right just by saying interact with this story as if you were the officer you were the nurse sure tell us what it looks like for you because you are the expert. Yep. Um, if you don't know it in your community, no one does. Right. Um, so our, our mission is to tell the, the right story to allow people to tell us how they live. Mm -hmm. 
if they interact with that story, this is how I would behave. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain sense of training there where you can allow folks not to have, you know, that they're listening with the intent, not just to respond, but just to begin with listening, to hear what a, a victim might be saying to them right. and not have their traditional response of, that makes them feel better, right? Mm -hmm. We can have these, these trained responses that we think we're giving this person an out or we think we're giving this person healing, yep. but it's really healing probably for ourselves to say, ah, oh, we solved this with that piece of cake or, right. or that toothbrush. We call it compasturbation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I feel good by sure. being kind. And I understand the impulse, right? We're biologically sure. wired for that. But um, yeah, that's the, the professionals that will be hearing the stories are so necessary. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've never been in a training before where my input uh, would matter outside the room. Right. Um, but to say, especially online when we're offering these trainings, um, to be able to collect all that data and go, these 3,000 nurses in Ottawa County have either expansive knowledge and no service availability for referrals or they have no very limited knowledge, but there's all these services that could be accessed. Right. They're just not aware. Um, that gets me revved up. Yeah. Because it doesn't take too many people yeah. to understand it, to go through their processes, and to, if a process doesn't exist, to help create it. Right. Um, that gets me pretty yeah. fired up. And then your hope then, as a response, is to take these silos of information and start to create connection pieces. Between right. Them. Um, if you think of it biblically, it's like uh, currently we're in, we're at Babel. Mm -hmm. Everybody's speaking their own language, uh, but we've all got a word or maybe five words for rock. Um, so we're trying to move more towards Pentecost, where you can keep speaking your language. We're not asking you to change your data system, the way you code, none of it. Right. We want to know what how you define it. Right. What the implications are of that definition. Um, and then how you track that data. So uh, we can have a, a meta level above it of just data collection looking for very specific points. Yeah. Um, that when those things are, well, this officer just put in suspected trafficking as a code, called it in. Um, well, if we knew that and there was a hospital nearby that got a notification, right? Not even saying this is the person's name, none of that. An officer reported this code, mm -hmm. be aware. Mm -hmm. um, or moving someone from a, a health environment, right, like a hospital to a shelter, those two don't communicate, and that's fine. Use the system you have, but if we understand really clearly what all those different data points mean, we can listen much more intently. Yeah. Um, and the ultimate goal is to have a dashboard that people from at the state level and partners, shelters, law enforcement, will be able to go on and regularly see this many codes, yep. uh, this time of year, this type of client, yep. they were male, they were female, they were trans, they were whatever it was. Yep. Um, then you start to know what to look for. Mm -hmm. And then you can write policy effectively. You can prosecute effectively. You can do public awareness effectively. Yeah. That it's not hysterical. We pay so much attention to stuff like the Super Bowl. Right. And, <laughs> and we're like, oh, trafficking is happening at the Super Bowl. A greater ra There's no data to back that up. Right. Uh, a. And B. Um, I don't, I don't know that it 
those type of hysterical things actually give any more clarity? Well, I've always wondered about this. This was going to be one of the questions, and I didn't even know how to frame it because I hear that, and it, it creates some kind of shock for people. It's been going on for four or five years in terms of that's been the narrative of, well, just remember, around the Super Bowl or major sporting events, this right. ramps up. And I had always wondered myself, what does that mean to me? What, right. Why? How does that change the way I, I act on December 28th or June right. 5 or May 31st? Not a bit, because we'd rather pay attention to, and for good reason, and don't hear me saying we shouldn't, um, it's a better story that we've grabbed onto, mm -hmm. uh, that human trafficking equals sexual exploitation, and that equals children all the time. Um, so when we make a huge deal about the Super Bowl or Olympics or, or World Cup or whatever the big event is, right. we're much more apt to be looking for these very specific type of people around a two-week period than the other 50 uh, weeks around the year with the people cleaning the hotel. Right. Day oh my day, gosh. Day-to-day -day basis. It is so... Rick, I'm not... It's not, not a joke. It is so pedestrian. The stories that, that we've heard in, in the research that we've done. I mean, we're talking about victims standing in line at Target, mm -hmm. like next to people, mm -hmm. uh, worried that they were going to get seen by someone who would know them. This is why they were trying to run away. They're at Target. They're uh, on airplanes uh, as nannies. They're, they're chefs, like two, three-star chefs mm -hmm. that were exploited really largely through the coercion was a lot of cultural, like you'll bring shame on your family. That was enough to do it for, for some people. So it's so, it's not hidden in plain sight. It's just in plain sight. Yeah. We know what shitty work looks like. Mm -hmm. And we pawn it off and go, wow, well, that's why we get an education. No, 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 no. That work has to, has to exist. We just don't va value it at almost any rate. Yeah, yeah. And so within that framework, I want to kind of enter into this world of this last three questions where... Yeah. We talk about, and let's do it from a measurable change standpoint, mm -hmm. in terms of partnerships, education, awareness, um, wins that you guys are having right now yeah. that has got this heart flourishing more. What's good in this arena that you guys are making strides um, that wouldn't otherwise be happening five, ten years ago? June 12th, I did this training. It was 40, 50 people-ish, somewhere sure. in there. Um, this was out here on the lakeshore? No, yeah. this was uh, by Flint. Okay, yeah. So we had people from seven different counties, and we sat them by county. Mm -hmm. uh, and we sat them down, and I, we told them the story in our kind of our structure. Here's the context, the people, manipulation, exploitation, uh, encounters, interventions, outcomes. This is how we kind of bracket everything out. Yep. Um, and we introduce it with trauma-informed care. We talk about uh, adverse childhood experiences and brain development and... Um, we talk about the polyvagal nerve system and how trauma is held in our bodies kind of throughout the story Why didn't this intervention work because this person couldn't hear it. This was what their body state was mm -hmm. um, And we just kept asking questions uh, What are the risks and vulnerabilities you see? What are the services that they're going to require? Do those exist for you in your organization or kind of sphere of influence if they do if they knock on your door? What is your intake and referral process? Um, where are the gaps? Who are your partner? Like just mapped out. Yes. Seven count. Well, I'm going to say three counties. Well, and the other four, we kind of bits and pieces just based on the size of the group. And we looked at it and we we're like, 
we could move. We have place. We have a flat out understanding of how to get victims from one place to the other, yeah. the services they need, and where the where the gaps are. Even d- right down to funding, right? Yeah. This is an area where we're kind of headed. Um, some places will that are domestic violence shelters, um, their funding is based on sexual assault and domestic violence. Um, but, which means when they get a trafficking victim, they're not gonna call it trafficking, right? They're gonna call it something else. Right. Um, based on their funding, but in that room, we were able to go. What are your funding sources? Well, it's uh, VOCA, Violence or Victims of Crime Act, right? The mm-hmm. federal one, or it's we get these state dollars, and just being able to go. What are those goals of all that money? It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But I left that room like psyched. Yeah. To say uh, we could do this in two hours, one hour, four hours, whatever that is. People are just zealous to have some sort of direction in this area. Every time we get in a room, specifically if it's a a single organization or maybe a bigger organization that has a bunch of, it's kind of a umbrella, it's got like 20 different actual organizations with it and they do every different service on demand. Um, When we get to the point where we say, tell us about your process. If a victim knocks on the door, calls on a crisis line, what's your process? The amount of anxiety that raises up in the room, we have to stop and say, look, this is what is happening. Mm-hmm. You, your body is feeling th- like physically survival threatened by the fact that you can't help that victim mm-hmm. based on this, the system you're in. But everybody in that room is like, best word, desirous of this thing. Yes. We know what utopia looks like. We just need the map. Mm-hmm. To get the, to at least take the next step. Yeah, that has been, yeah, I huge. Get, yeah, yeah, and it's a marathon. I mean, it's not an arrival point. You guys, plenty of this work has existed prior to 2019, yeah. and you are continuing to be gatherers of that former education and finding out what it looks like to apply it in today's arena. Yeah, and it's right up to big tech companies, IBM is lining up like Watson Technology and uh, Interpol and sure, NGOs sure. Um, to say, well, how do we get a handle on this? Mm-hmm. And they want to do it, hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you can't, like, we're not spitting at it. Um, there's a recognition that, that this problem can be solved. Awesome. Um, and getting buy-in on the next level is sort of the, yeah. the challenge. Yeah. For sure. Tell me a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, that you, you say recognizing the challenge, what, what are the inhibitors in terms of, um, this has been in the lexicon in the last three to four years about being, uh, trauma informed, talking Mm -hmm. about adverse childhood experiences and how that weighs on us physically. We're identifying a ton of the data. Um, what's not wrong that makes your, what's not right that makes your heart come on fire. So what's wrong when you wake up each day and what's not going well and and those are hurdles we have to get over? Uh, I'm working um, on a, it's a broader project in Kent County uh, called the Kent County Housing Security Design Team is the team I'm on. Okay. So it started because uh, people serving 
uh, youth and families that are experiencing homelessness were saying, we have really, really uh, unjust outcomes related to race when it comes to housing Mm -hmm. and homelessness. And the the statistics that came out just from Kent County, um, one in every 160 uh, white children will experience homelessness uh, or experienced homelessness in, in 2018 in Kent okay. County. Okay. One in, uh, right around 100, uh, one in 68, mm-hmm. one in 68 uh, Latino children, and one in seven black children. Mm. Uh, you could say, well, the stats are way off. So half one and double the other. Right. Still. Yeah, we still have night and day experiences. One, like, it, it, just the, if you lay out 160 pencils, right, mm-hmm. set one over there, just the image of saying one in, se- like, I know seven children mm-hmm. that feel comfortable coming to my house and hanging out. And I think about, it doesn't have to be them, and yet all, it gives me such a clear picture of how in the world can we look at that problem and say this isn't on purpose. So when we say what's wrong, uh, making an argument that excuses that our social behavior, that uh, does not take into uh, consideration how serious redlining affect generations of people, never mind slavery, never mind Jim Crow, mass incarceration, all the way back, never mind all of that, like where we are now Mm -hmm. is so purposefully unjust. it didn't happen by accident. I don't think there's like someone behind the curtain. I think we're all back there looking out for ourselves. Sure, sure. Um, that we're working. Like I'm, I joined this this group because I see them wanting to change that, and I'd I'd rather be a part of that. Yeah. Um, but you can't build in in Kenton, Ottawa County. You got to be building a house that's like three hundred thousand dollars. Like the builder is going to oh, yeah. need that amount just to make it profitable. Yep. So if we're saying a, a low income family can afford, let's say high end, a thousand dollars a month, you can't build a house or an apartment that for that price. No. Not to make not to be profitable. You no. maybe could break even, but if it's not in our DNA to say housing is not. Does is not uh, chained to profit, right? We have to. We have, then we have to have uh, like serious conversation about genetics, yeah. <laughs> social yeah. injustice in genetics. Yeah. Uh, then lastly, you know, we went. What's good? What needs work? Um, what's next? Tell us a little bit about touch points in in which you want to see measurable change in the conversation in the new year and, mm-hmm. and even your own work with the comp- with the organization? Yeah, um, one of our focus areas uh, is, is partnering with uh, organizations that are doing amazing work and having significant uh, trouble with data collection. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been uh, talking with uh, children's assessment centers or children's advocacy yeah. centers. Yeah. Um, so for people who don't know, they work with kids who have been sexually abused, physically abused, uh, witness violence. About 12,000 in Michigan mm-hmm. last year went through. And the beauty of that place, this would be another what's great, um, is you've got law enforcement, social services, and, and health care all working together. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, the victim doesn't have to retell their story. Yes. And everybody feels a little bit more safe, right? Um, but the challenges they experience 
because of how data is collected in each yeah. geographic different area. Um, we started talking with them about, okay, what does it look like to line this up so that a perpetrator cannot abuse a child in one county, have that suspicion hanging over them, uh, have the Children's Advocacy Center and even the police know mm -hmm. that they're in suspicion. We can't just have that perpetrator go to a different county where they don't know. Hurt children have the assessment center and the police know there. Yes. But they're not communicating together. The police aren't communicating, the, this perpetrator moving around and there's... Yeah. All the data's there. Yep. Um, the wires just aren't connecting in the circuit. So that's a project that we're excited about um, working with them over the next yeah. year, maybe two. Yeah. And they have an initiative going on right now for this healing garden. Is that right? Are you? Yeah, that's a Kent you, County one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Melissa Workman and uh, yep. the CAC out of, out of Kent County. Um, I heard a ton about that through Leadership Grand Rapids this past year through the Chamber of Commerce. And um, they seem to be really doing some informed responses to how they can just be part of the, the healing solution mm -hmm. for these children. Yeah. Yeah, there's what what measurable change has taught me, if nothing else, is um, we pay a lot of people money for their value for work, and yeah. we should. Um, that's sort of the point of our big project, right? right Labor right. matters. Good work matters. Yeah. Um, but there's so many people that, uh, and I'll use uh, Chris and Mark, the guys that I work with, as yeah. examples. Yeah. Um, Chris understands the the his own value, his work, he's seen it change corporations and that sort of thing. And, and him going, yeah, but I can make a million bucks off of that and that would be great. Um, but I, I still feel like I need, I need to be using my skill to bring people with me. Yeah. Whether that's through awareness or that's through, we can track these victims more effectively and we can provide care. Um, Mark with man, pro, uh, project management and, and operation skill and we meet um, lawyers and doctors mm -hmm. and teachers and, and marketing people who are just like, how can I use the value I'm paid for right. to, act, to turn different dials, dials I'm, I'm not supposed to necess necessarily care about for my place of work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, handing out Kool-Aid at a 5K is great, and I do that on occasion because that's the the most I can do at an event sometimes is like look I'm not talking I'm not doing anything, I'm not running right I'll hand out Kool-Aid right. and, and we need those volunteers as well uh, and major problems get solved when some of the most wise experts we have start to say no that thing matters just as much as my career yeah um, my company my stakeholders yeah uh, that's pretty trippy and we've seen that a lot and I'm anxious for more yeah yeah definitely yeah and like I said you know this this is a conversation about you have done a few I wouldn't even say mini sprints I think you're, you're setting some wheels in motion in different areas as you continue to look at those gaps mm -hmm. and just say what would it look like to build a space that talks about filling in those gaps providing the, the, the safety and providing this sense of belonging um, for all humans that walk across our path. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, maybe it's not the most exciting, but that idea that if people are, when we just focus on trafficking, the enormity of the problem, 
It's in what we buy, it's in what we eat, it's in what we drink, it's in our clothes, uh, our sexual behavior, all the sorts of things. It's everywhere. Uh, if you can map that by allowing the people who are already doing that work to yeah. say, here's what it looks like for me and here's what we need, yeah. um, you've effectively mapped uh, youth homeless services and foster care services mm-hmm. and uh, domestic violence care our opioid crisis, like you've, you've yeah. understood how the whole system works. So our goal in starting with trafficking for the platform that we're creating, mm-hmm. we can educate people, tell a great story and allow, collect their responses to inform our decisions. Um, that could be for anything. Yeah. Um, my heart beats for what it beats for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're always looking for the, the person that's like, look, <laughs> this is the problem I'm, I'm running into again and again. And we have a solution and we need some data. Let's tell a new story around this next social ill. Right. Uh, and start to solve that one as well. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating work and, and it's it's awesome to see your heart come on fire for it. Um, I really appreciate your time. Yeah. It's just fascinating work and I think it's valuable for uh, people to get little tidbits of that. So, awesome. Let's do it again sometime. Sounds good. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.